0: You're listening to the podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church, a church in Gloucester, England. Well, let us come to Genesis 18, and as I said, this really links together with Genesis 19 as one unit. We've seen in Genesis that some of these units are really quite long, uh, and this is a long passage. I thought two chapters might be uh, way too long to try to get through in one sitting. Uh, but it does mean that uh, really the, the, the full force of it comes uh, as we look at these both, both halves together. Uh, but let me come to, uh, let's come to God's Word. So Genesis 17 we looked at, might remember, was God renewing the covenant with Abraham and giving the the covenant of circumcision and uh, promising that he would have a son, Isaac, through Sarah, his wife. Chapter 18. And the Lord appeared to him, that's Abram, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed, at, bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and Wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. Will I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves?" And after that, you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. And they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seers of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years, and the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, uh, shall I have this pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year. And Sarah will ha- shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness. And justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, Suppose 40 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 40, I will not do it. He answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Well, may God bless the reading and the preaching of his word to us this evening. Well, the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy writes that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. Um, But it must be said that some scripture and some portions of scripture are more strange than other portions of scripture. And this passage has uh, its mysteries and its strange parts in it as we have the Lord visiting uh, Abraham and these three men who come before us. Now, the overall theme that we're coming to in this part of Genesis is, is that the time is drawing near for the promised son to be, to be born, or at least to be conceived. We've been waiting and waiting for that, for chapters and chapters. But linked with that, the time is also drawing near for the destruction of the cities of the plain, for the destruction of the wicked. And we find, as we look in Genesis, that these themes are woven together. God has promised to give Abraham the land, and this will involve either the the repentance and the conversion of those in the land, uh, or ultimately will involve uh, their their destruction. So in uh, chapter 18, as as we looked at it, and certainly as we get on to 19, there's plenty here both to delight us with the joyful news of this, this birth announcement, plenty to delight us, but also plenty to disturb us as we see this theme in Scripture of, of divine judgment on, on the wicked and as we grapple with these things. And so we're going to, uh, to look at this in, in two, uh, two main sections. We'll look at that, that first section, really, about this, this promise of the Son – to Abraham and Sarah. And then that final section, really from, well, 16 onwards, that the last three paragraphs you've got printed there, which is about the intercession of Abraham. So we come to, to verse one. We read, the Lord appeared to Abraham, And you notice the Lord there, capital letters. This is Yahweh, the God who appeared to Moses at the burning bush, the covenant uh, God. And he appears to Abraham um, and he appears at the, the Oaks of Mamre, And we've uh, read in chapter 13 that that's where Abraham had settled uh, by these oaks. And that was one of the places where, in the land, when he got to the land, he'd built uh, an altar to the Lord. So it's a place of worship. And the the trees there, these great oaks, would provide shade and shelter. uh, And there's obviously water there. Uh, So it's a a place of uh, of worship. And it's, it's a little mini Eden, it's a temple sanctuary. Uh, in, in a barren land, here is a place of rest. here is a place of refreshment, a place of worship. Um, and so um, he 's still here by these these oaks and um, and then the Lord appears to him as he sits by the door of the tent in the heat of the day, and he lifts up his eyes and behold, three men were standing. There, or lift up his eyes and looked. And notice there's this threefold emphasis on his seeing. He lifted his eyes, he looked, and behold. And all through the passage, there's various um, mentions of, of either Abraham seeing, or the Lord seeing, or later on of, we, we question about what Lot saw, what Lot didn't see. So he sees these three men. And he addresses them, these three men, uh, and with the singular form of address as, O Lord, and that's the form of address that a servant would use speaking to a master. And that raises one of the puzzles of the text, is what is the, the identity of these three men and how do they relate to the appearance of the Lord? Now, I understand that uh, sometimes it's been said that these three men are an appearance of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I've never actually read that in any commentary, but apparently that has been said. I think that's rather fanciful. Um, as we read on into chapter 19, we see that there are two angels who go to, uh, to Sodom, to, to go to, to view, uh, to look at Sodom. And so um, it seems possibly the best solutions to see here, there is the Lord um, in human form or invisible form as, as, as a man with two angels. But there are various oddities of the text, particularly as the, the, the men seem to speak in unison. So there's this divine encounter, and there's plenty of room here for, uh, for mystery and plenty of puzzles. And so um, they come uh, to Abraham. He, he bows down before them, and Abraham uh, humbly offers hospitality. Just notice in verse 4, he offers just a, a little water. And verse 5, a morsel of bread. And he offers cleansing and rest. So they're invited by Abraham to come to this place of rest, a place of cleansing, a place of refreshing. And I think we're meant to see again a little sort of temple sanctuary or the sort of, think of the the temple later in Israel's life was a place of rest, a place of feasting, a place of sanctuary. And they are to come near um, across the desert and to be cleansed, washed, and receive rest. And then we see Abraham with his serious and rather urgent preparations. Verse 6, he went quickly to Sarah. Quick, three seers of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. These staccato instructions, the kind which I'm sure uh, go very, go down very well at, uh, at home. You might like to try this, husbands, and see how you get on. Uh, maybe not. But there is this urgent task uh, at hand. And a sear of uh, Bread, of uh, uh, flour, that is eight litres. So there's an enormous quantity of bread that is being made. And then he, Abraham runs to the herd and uh, takes the son of the herd, tender and good, and gives it to the young man. He prepares it quickly. So it's the best flour, the best of the herd. They make, and Abraham and Sarah themselves make these preparations. Um, and interestingly, they, they, they've got plenty of servants in their household. Probably Abraham's running a shakedom of couple of thousand people, but they themselves have this direct oversight. Such is the importance of the visitors. So verse 8, he takes curds, milk, the coffee prepared, set them before him, as they, and he stood under the tree uh, while they ate. So he lays before them this meal of vastly greater in quality and quantity than the morsel of bread and the water that he had promised. And this is wonderful picture of hospitality as he entertains these three strangers, and entertains angels uh, unawares. And I think this is a a picture of this sort of fellowship and communion, which foreshadows really many of the fellowship meals of the Bible. As we we move on in the scriptures, we see uh, the people of God feasting in the presence of the Lord. As, As the Lord came down at Sinai, the elders of Israel feasted in the presence of the Lord. Uh, even as we were thinking this morning, uh, how in the temple there was the, the bread, of, bread of the presence, and so the temple was to symbolize a place of feasting, a place of washing and feasting before the Lord. Um, and we see as the Lord Jesus comes, the Lord with his people, what does he do? We saw this morning the Lord with his disciples on the Sabbath day, and uh, he's eating, they're resting and they're eating. We find the Lord Jesus having uh, food with his friends. So just a picture of this fellowship there with the Lord as we uh, see this theme picked up uh, through the scripture. So that is sort of foreshadowed here, although Abraham at this point, is he's off at the side acting as a servant. It's just amazing to think of um, the Last Supper of the Lord as, as the Lord washes our feet and the Lord uh, provides for us uh, bread and wine. And so I think just this picture of fellowship here and a reminder of the importance of our worship as we come together to enjoy communion and fellowship uh, with the Lord. Well, we come to this promise of the Son, verse 9. They said to him, and again, they said, in, in, how does this work, in unison? I um, don't know how that works, but where is um, Sarah, your wife? They know Abraham has a wife, they know her name. She's in the tent. And the Lord said, moves, swaps back to the singular here, I will surely return to you about this time next year, or, or literally in, in the time of life. Um, it's referring to the spring, the time of the new life in the year. And behold, uh, a, uh, well, literally, behold a son um, to Sarah, your wife. And so uh, we're moving now from this promise to the time when God is going to fulfill his promise and turn barrenness to fruitfulness. And Sarah hears it herself. She overhears it from the tent door. But we're reminded, verse 11, uh, that they're old, advancing years. And then we're told uh, the way of women had ceased with Sarah. And this is new information in Genesis. We've been told way back in chapter 12 that she's barren. But now we find out she's uh, actually past the age of bearing children completely. So it's uh, doubly impossible for her to have a son. So, verse 12, Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have this pleasure? That is the joy of having uh, a baby, a son. She laughs, and we return to this theme of laughter in Genesis. Remember that Isaac's name means laughter. So verse 13, the Lord says to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say I shall indeed bear a son now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return, and next year Um, Sarah will have a son. She denies it, uh, for she's afraid, but he says, no, uh, you did laugh. So her response is laughter and disbelief. And I think uh, the Lord, I think we're meant to see his his rebuke as a very gentle rebuke here. Um, It's not a, a stern, some sort of stern rebuke, I don't think, but actually more of an invitation to trust the Lord's great power, to wonder about his power. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is the birth of Isaac to uh, an old woman who's barren, is that too hard for the Lord? Well, I guess probably modern scholars would say, no, that is too hard for the Lord. Um, but it's not too hard for the Lord. And is anything too hard for the Lord? Is it the resurrection of Christ from the dead too hard for the Lord? Well, no, it's not. Nothing is too hard from the Lord. He raised Isaac uh, from, uh, from from Sarai from the, from barrenness. He raised Christ from uh, the dead. And so, uh, and so she uh, she laughs, and her laughter it arises partly from unbelief, partly from surprise. So, laughter when we laugh, that is that's a response to. It's often a response to a surprise, isn't it? That's how jokes work. You sort of have the setup, and then you have the punchline. Um, I was trying to think of a joke. I couldn't think of one. I thought, well, maybe knock-knock. But then I thought we'd all say, who's there? So knock-knock, come in. He said, there's a joke, and they all laughed. But that's how jokes work, isn't it? There's a a suspense, and then there's a surprise. And Isaac, as he's born, it's this great uh, surprise. There's uh, disbelief. The punchline comes... And you don't expect it. Like we saw with the resurrection of Christ. We saw on Easter Easter Day or the week after Easter that the disciples disbelieved for joy. They didn't believe it. They saw Christ was risen and they were filled with joy and disbelief. So the birth of Isaac, it forms really like a a punchline in Genesis. Abram and Sarah have been waiting and wondering. They've been promised and they've been waiting for over 20 years for the birth of this son, and they're wondering, is it going to be Lot as an adopted son? Is it going to be uh, Eleazar of Damascus? Is it going to be Ishmael? Who's is this? And then finally, the great punchline is that it is Isaac. And so we're just uh, reminded how God works out His plans of redemption. He makes promises. And then there are these just long stretches of time when God's people are waiting for God to fulfill His promising, during which time often things go from bad to worse, until finally the situation looks completely hopeless, till finally it's like Good Friday and the sky turns black. And that is the time for God's punchline. That is the time for God to fulfill his promise, to the delight and joy of his people. Then comes God's punchline. So what is God doing in post-enlightenment Europe? What is God doing in the secular West? as the the numbers in the church decline and decline and and secular humanism gets more and more aggressive? Well, he's preparing for the next punchline, isn't he? He's preparing his next providential work within history. He's working out his promises. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for him? Can he revive and restore his church. Can he fulfill these ancient promises? Will we see it in our own lifetime? Well, maybe not, but we trust and we wait for God's promises. We look to Abraham, our father. We look to Sarah as we are called to do so in the book of Isaiah. So um, we look for that and ultimately we wait for the return of Christ. We look for the the great culmination of all God's purposes, waiting for For the fulfilment of God's purposes and plans, that day of great joy, when everlasting joy and happiness will crown our heads, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. So that is the the promise of the Son. And then we come to Abraham's uh, intercession. We come to this next uh, section starting at uh, verse 16. We find that the men set out from there, and they look down towards Sodom, and this is not the first time uh, that Sodom has been mentioned in Genesis. Uh, we read in Genesis 13 that that Lot, uh, Abram's nephew, went to live near Sodom, and then uh, in chapter 14, we find that Lot is living in Sodom, and then we find that uh, Sodom has been ransacked by Kedileomer, he's taken them off, and actually Abraham then rescues the people of Sodom, and the the king of Sodom meets uh, Melchizedek, so there's been sort of interaction and a chance for the inhabitants, some of them of Sodom, to hear from Abraham and and hear hear of the true and living God. So it's not the first time we hear of the cities of the plain. And we've been told back in 13 that the people of Sodom uh, were very wicked. But notice here, there's a detail in the text of verse 16, uh, the men, they set out from there and they looked down towards Sodom. And um, that introduces this theme of really divine evaluation, which is then uh, picked up in verse 20. The Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. This is divine evaluation. And that has been introduced uh, throughout the, the book of Genesis. We saw Genesis 1. Uh, remember that, and God said, uh, this was good, God saw, and he said it was good, God looked at the creation, and he saw, he evaluated, he said it was good, Um, so there's a positive evaluation, Uh, but in the the times of Noah, the Lord looked, and he saw uh, that, or rather, he saw that the the man was wicked, the the wickedness of man had grown great on the earth, so there's divine evaluation before uh, the flood, and then at Babel, there's another evaluation. The Lord looked down to the tower that they had built. This is another divine evaluation. So before the judgment on the wicked falls, there is this divine evaluation. We see that all the way through uh, the scriptures, um, right up in, into the New Testament. The Lord Jesus comes himself to Jerusalem and looks around. He looks to see what's happening in the temple courts, and he sees that it's like a, a fig tree with no figs on it. There's this divine evaluation of Jerusalem before the, final, the, the judgment on Jerusalem fell in AD 70. So the Lord is going down to evaluate Sodom, but the point really here is that Abraham is with them. So, verse 16, Abraham went with them to set them on their way. And verse 17, the Lord said, so Yahweh said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? There was going to be this divine evaluation, and as we know, judgment upon Sodom um, and the cities of the plain. But here Abraham is invited in, as it were, to the, the divine council. He's brought near to hear the counsel of the Lord. Um, so here Abraham is welcomed into these deliberations. He's invited to that he might intercede. He's given this high position really as a sort of privy privy counsellor. He's let in to what is going on. So the Lord is not going to hide this from Abraham, but rather to make it known to him. And this is uh, is going to be part of what it means for for Abraham to learn to be a righteous man. We know Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He trusted God's promises, and it was counted as righteous. Abraham was not sinless. He was sinful, as we are. But he had to, to live a godly, a righteous life. Uh, and part of that was um, uh, warning and teaching his children. So part of what was going on with uh, the Lord letting him into this was so that, um, verse 19, I've chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Um, So Abraham would be able to warn his his children of what happened to the cities, what happened to Lot, and say, look, the way of the righteous will will, will prosper, the way of the wicked will perish. Um, But righteousness here, and this is the focus of it, also means interceding for these cities. The Lord is opening up this to him so that Abraham might actually come and pray um, before the Lord. And that foreshadows really who we are as God's people. We're a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And part of that is interceding before the Lord. We are to be a house of prayer for the nations. So Abraham intercedes before the Lord for the sake of Sodom. So verse 22, the men turned from there, went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood still before the Lord. And he drew near and said, And he began to intercede. And his prayer is all based on the the great concern for righteousness and justice uh, of the Lord. And uh, so he he prays, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And and then he starts, if if there are 50 righteous, and and so on. And then, uh, end of verse 25, far be it uh, that, far, sorry, far be that from you uh, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? So it's a great theme of God's, God's righteousness and God doing what is right and God acting uh, not to destroy the whole city and along with that sweep away uh, the righteous within that community, the 50 or so righteous people that are possibly in the community. So he, he, he comes in prayer and as he goes on, the, the number gets fewer and fewer. Evidently, well, the Lord said, verse 26, if I find 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sakes. Evidently, they are not even that. And so uh, the the bar was set too high. And uh, it's a strange back and forth. It seems that Abraham is is haggling. It seems that this is a bit like the sort of activity that you might have uh, uh, buying buying a carpet or something like that in a bazaar. That he's 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 haggling. He's arguing with the Lord. I think we are meant to see his importuna and bold prayer before the Lord, even though he's he's very humble. But really, at the heart of this, it is um, God's God's righteousness. There were not fifty righteous. There were not even forty-five. There were not forty. There were not thirty. There were not. 20. Uh, were there 10? Uh, and then he wondered, well, why, why does he stop at 10? And the commentary sort of come up with different suggestions about this. People have suggested that, well, 10 is the number of uh, maybe Lot and his household, so Lot and his wife and a couple of sons and a couple of daughters and sons, sons-in-law. Maybe you can get up to 10, and perhaps that's what Abraham was thinking about, Lot. Um, but they weren't... Very righteous, uh, a lot of them. Uh, But actually, others have suggested, and I think it's possibly more plausible, that 10 is the the number of, if you're going to have a sort of a minimum functioning godly community within a godless city, you need at least 10. The the Jews would need you need ten men to start a synagogue, so you have ten men and their wives and their children to to at least start a synagogue. You can't. um, So with with that, there might be hope that you could turn around a city like Sodom uh, with the righteous in the city, but with just a few scattered individuals, there is no hope for this city. It is utterly, uh, it is utterly doomed. So um, God is just. And this whole intercession of Abraham has just shown and highlights that this act of judgment on Sodom was an act of purest justice against that city. All the more so since Lot and his family would, in fact, be rescued prior to the destruction of the city, as we come on to um, uh, next week. But it's an extraordinary example of Abraham's prayer, his intercession, as he comes before the Lord, his boldness. And we see actually as the Lord just opens this door for him to come to intercede. In his righteousness, he was not meant to be indifferent to what was going on about him. He was not meant to be indifferent to these cities uh, of the plains and these cities around about him. Part of what it meant for for God's people to be gathered together would be to pray for the needs of the world around about them. And and they were to be that uh, kingdom of priests for the nations, the point of God calling abraham together was to be a a blessing to the nations and partly that would involve praying for the nations and we see that great um, theme through the whole of the scriptures even as we come to the new testament and christ coming to the temple and clearing it and saying well this temple is meant to be a house of prayer for the nations and that is what we're meant to be as the church as we live in the fulfillment of the ages we are given this task of those who are to to intercede and to, to be concerned for the world and to pray on the basis of God's own righteousness, on the basis of God's own promise. So we live in the the fulfilment of the ages and and really the wonder of the gospel is that God has made a way uh, whereby he might be utterly just, utterly fair, utterly righteous and yet save, save the wicked, yet save us, save sinners through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So uh, these things point forwards, you they, they see the examples of other intercessors in the Old, Old, Old Testament, we see Moses, we see David in the Psalms, ultimately we see the Lord Jesus, who was not only the perfect sacrifice for sin, but the one who entered the Holy of Holies, the one who intercedes for, uh, for the church, the one who stands at the right hand of God, and, and the Lord says to him, ask of me, and I'll make the nations your inheritance. The ends of the earth, your possessions. And the Son uh, asks for the nations and we in Christ ask for the nations. So this really, there's there's many things which are foreshadowed here in these passages. We've seen before uh, just the kingly role of Abraham has been uh, foreshadowed in Genesis 12. We've seen his prophetic role foreshadowed in at Genesis 15. And here we really see a, a priestly ministry of Abraham and of, of God's people as they're called to intercede and pray before the Lord. And so as we come to a close, we, we reflect on these chapters. There are uh, many disturbing things, strange things, picks up this theme of God's judgment, divine justice, as we see that uh, next week, and various Exodus themes which come in as we'll look at next week. We've thought of the fellowship that we have with the Lord, the rest and refreshment of God's people as we uh, draw near uh, to him. And we've seen the, the, the call to righteousness here uh, that Abraham had to teach his children, his family, uh, and he had to, to do that. Uh, and he had to pray, to intercede, he's invited to do that, not just for his own concerns, but also for, uh, for the world. So, amen. Let us turn to God in prayer. <clears throat> You've been listening to the Sermon Podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church. You can find us out online at gloucesterpres.co.uk. For more, thank you.